This is the Making Books podcast. I'm author Polly Ho Yen, and this is a podcast documenting the often slow, sometimes agonising, but also, let's face it, ridiculously exciting art of creating books. Each week, I'll be talking to a writer, illustrator, or industry expert about what their life is really like when they've dedicated it to making books. Okay, a lovely little treat for you this week. I'm talking to the fantastic children's writer, M.G. Leonard. M.G. Leonard is the author of multiple series. She's written loads and it's all fantastic. Um, And in this chat, we talk about her series writing. We talk about how she got started. I mean, in fact, we get into so much stuff and in such lovely, specific detail that I don't want to summarise it all, but listen, listen right to the end. As I was editing this, even up to like the last minute, um, I felt like I was learning so much around how Maya writes and her process and and how she approaches making books. So it's it's um it's really, really lovely, lovely, interesting stuff. Enjoy, enjoy. Here she is, MG Leonard. I'm in a shed at the bottom of my garden. Your shed's massive. Yeah. So when we bought our house, which was like a year and a half ago, which is a miracle, being a writer, being able to buy a house. And sadly, the only reason we could buy it is because my husband's mum died a few years ago. So we were able to buy it and it's got, there are no Brightons in garden. No, there are no gardens in Brighton <laughs> is what I meant to say, because everything's up on hills. So you, if you're lucky, you get like a square, like a, a patio size. But the place that we bought had about three square lengths worth of garden. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to buy it was so that I could build this. And this is a fully insulated, like there's a radiator there. It's toasty and warm. It's dry. I do yoga every morning on the floor. Oh, nice. So this is, I, yeah, I have dreamed of having this space away from my children and the house for as long as I can remember. And now I finally have it. So how long has your shed been in operation? six months I think and it's still a bit like we've got a futon for guests and my husband's bike is behind me obviously <laughs> we've got detritus still going on we haven't quite sorted everything out I've got boxes and boxes of like my international editions which I don't quite know what to do with um so we like we're still in the sorting out phase but um the book that I've got coming out in February Feather I wrote last year on a tiny little fold down uh, <laughs> writing desk in my bedroom surrounded by laundry and stuff with noise cancelling headphones on and it was the most torturous and oh just children talk to you all the time no one left me alone and I thought I was going to go mad Um, so I'm really looking forward to writing my first book in this space because oh, they yeah. have to come through the garden to get to me and right now yeah. it's hailing down here. It's that no one's going to come. No oh, one. I'm going to be all alone. <laughs> you totally deserve it. Um, I know that what we just that just reminded me of. I remember writing on just like a drawer that I pulled out that was sort of the right level, and then balancing precariously on that when we were in a flat. I think that was the that was the sacred space back then. But yeah, but now look at you. You've arrived. I know. And it's like, well, I've written nearly 20 books. So I think it's yeah. about time. So, it's yeah. about it's about time. Um, so, oh, my goodness. Where do we begin? Maya? Where do we begin? Should we begin? Should we begin at your beginning? Could we do your origin story? Yeah. OK. Yeah. Did, yeah. What, happened? what how happened? How did I become a writer? How did you become um, a writer? What were you doing before then? Did you did you think that you was it something you always thought you might do? Was it something that surprised you? Yeah, no, I never. Like I liked the idea of being a writer when I was uh, younger, but I, I'm, I'm quite realistic, and I, I was not a good student at school, um, for a host of reasons, not all of them my fault, but definitely, you know, it wasn't a great school that I went to. I had attention issues. I had emotional issues. Uh, I was tested for things like dyslexia and dyspraxia, and I have none of those things, but I definitely have a brain that whirls, that goes very fast. And my dexterous abilities to write with a pen were not in sync with my head. Mm. Uh, and so when I did write creative flow, we call it as a grown up, um, what came out was illegible and had no grammar or punctuation. And often things were spelt phonetically and not, I, you know, I could write the same word twice in a paragraph and they'd be spelt differently and both would be incorrect. So I was told repeatedly that, that I was bad at that. 
um, bad at writing. Uh, and uh, I definitely, you know, you believe your teachers. If they tell you that enough times, you're like, okay, so I'm bad at that thing. Oh, well. Uh, I'm quite an optimistic and cheerful person. So I was like, well, I love reading. I read everything. Uh, and I love storytelling, but I can't write because I'm bad at it. So I will just tell stories. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to work in theatre. Uh, I didn't know all the different jobs that there were in theatre. I just knew about actors and directors and playwrights. And I knew I couldn't be a playwright. So I was like, oh, well, I can't be a director because they have to know stuff and be in charge. So I'd like to be an actor. Um, and that is what that was kind of my aspiration probably for about the first decade of my adult life. I thought I'd like to be involved in theatre and, and do acting and tell stories. And then I did acting and it was not as fun as I thought it was going to be. I always loved the rehearsal process where you're working things out and you're saying lines in different ways and trying to find out the objective of a scene and you're working with people. It's so collaborative. There's like 20 people in a rehearsal room and you're all speaking Shakespeare and that's cool. Love rehearsals. Felt like I was living my best life during rehearsals. And of course, all the rehearsals builds up to performances, which I thought would be like, that's where the icing and the cherry is on this cake. And I'm going to love that. And I tended to like the first couple of performances, you know, nerves and kind of press night and all that kind of stuff. But then I got bored very, very quickly because you're effectively saying the same thing in the same way, sometimes twice a day, six, seven days a week. And actors get bored. I mean, they really do on a long run where you're doing the same yeah. play for like three months. You all have like, we used to have little jokes where we'd all try and get little lines from, I think it was a Britney Spears song at the time <laughs> into Shakespeare because we were so bored. Um, and I, I realized, oh, I don't, I don't like performing. I just like the rehearsing. And I also realized that um, I have very strong opinions I like to be in charge. And so I I didn't butt heads with a director, but I did definitely tell the director and the producers how to do their jobs on more than one occasion. And I could see quite quickly that in the cast, I was the pain in the ass. Every time I would go up to them, they'd be like, oh God, what's she going to say now? And uh, I'd always have helpful suggestions about how they could do things better, which I thought were helpful, but obviously came across as like some no-all little actress who... Uh, was telling everyone how to do their job. So I realised quite quickly that acting was not for me. I loved the storytelling. I loved the development and the work and the collaboration, but I didn't like the performances and I didn't like being told how to move my body or how to use my voice, which is what directors have to do to actors to make the whole case of whole work. So I thought, gosh, I'm going to have to be a director because they're in charge. So then I started to do an open university degree. I didn't go to university when I left school. I failed my A-levels. I genuinely thought I wasn't a particularly bright person. And then I started to do an open university degree. Sorry, I'm going to just say, I, and... it's crazy hearing your origin story because it's like hearing you say, I don't think I'm a very bright person. You were like, you're on my bright person list in my head, always. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort well, of... This is the thing. I think the education system was created in the Victorian era, yeah. era to to really send minions out who all had the same trainings across the empire to work like a massive machine. Uh, and it hasn't changed. And I am not great at being a cog in a machine. Uh, I've only learned this as a grown up. Uh, as a young person, I constantly thought I was doing things wrong or wasn't very clever. Or I just don't like being a cog in a machine. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know many, every... many people do, really. I, and I totally agree with you, this sort of, you know, it doesn't... But if you don't know, you see, this is the thing. At school, we were being trained to be cogs and machines, but we didn't know that. Yeah. And yeah. society says you have to do this because then you have to go to university and you have to... And there's a system and a way and a process. And I was failing at all of it, so I failed my A-levels and, and, and moved to London and got a job in the music industry, um, which, interestingly... In the music industry, uh, I worked with a band called The Divine Comedy. I managed them in their early days and then stopped managing them when I got promoted to run the record label that they were signed to and then um, rather unprofessionally married the very handsome lead guitarist because that's what you do in your 20s when you're not very bright and uh, had a wild time. But what I learned by working in the music industry was that Neil Hannon, who is 
a lovely person who, similar to me, did not thrive in education. He was useless at pretty much everything. I mean, the man couldn't iron a shirt. He couldn't book a restaurant table. He often couldn't even hail his own taxi. But man, could he write a song. And what I witnessed when I worked, I mean, I worked with a lot of bands, but the Divine Comedy was my big education, was that one, yeah, I mean, he was young at the time in his mm. early 20s, one man could write eight to 10 songs that made an album. And that album could pay the wages of all of the record industry staff, all of the band members and the management team indefinitely. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, crap, that what? How, you write a song, three minutes, ching, 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 obviously it has to be a good one that resonates with everyone. And you create a copyright, which is like a seed. And then if someone covers it or someone uses it in a movie or there's so many different ways that that seed can grow and bloom and flourish. And if you are tapped into like the world and what they're up to and into uh, and you chime with the way everyone's feeling, uh, you can earn enough money to support the livelihoods of many people. And I witnessed that because Neil's success obviously paid my wages at a period of time. And I was quite shocked. It's not something they taught me at school. They just taught me I needed to do kind of creative stuff like uh, well, I don't even I don't think they even explained why. I always thought it was about expressing myself, but no one ever said this could be a job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when yeah. I worked in the when I worked in the music industry, I was like, oh, if you can create the seed, that can earn money. But I, I mean, I can hum a carol at Christmas, but Come I do on, not have that cha ching song. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I literally have very little musical skills so I was like oh if only I could like play the piano or play a guitar or maybe I could write songs but obviously I knew that I that that avenue was not open to me so anyway I tried acting etc and uh then I was like if I want to be a theatre director I need I need a literary education because I can't walk in to a professional theatre and explain why I should be allowed to direct Shakespeare when there's people out there with PhDs that can argue it way better than me. And I didn't even have a degree or A-levels. So I was like, shit, how am I going to, what am I going to do? And that's when I discovered the Open University, um, which allows you to study alongside earning a living. Uh, and it's very like, the university changed my life. The Open University changed my life. Like I'm very proud to be a graduate of the Open University, but the real reason it revolutionized my head is because I started the course and it's meant to take six years to do an Open University degree. I did the first unit, um, which is meant to take a year, and I devoured it. It was so interesting. It taught me little bits about uh, Greek architecture and it, it was an introduction to humanities so it, it kind of hopped and skipped across the humanities bit of history you know a bit of literature and uh I really loved it and I didn't realize that as an adult my brain was craving stimulus so uh I gulped that module down and I got like a first I got a, a an A in it and I was confused because I never got that at school so I, I didn't really understand and then I realized because I was paying as I went. So I was paying for, I didn't have it. I didn't occur any debt whilst doing it. So I, I paid for the module each week, like a direct debit. And because I was paying for it, I worked really hard to do the work, but I got to do it in my way, in my time. Like I didn't have to deal with other people, which was my problem at school. Um, and and I aced it and I was like, oh, I want to do another module. And they're like, well, you're only meant to do one module a year for six years. And I was like, well, I want to do another one. And they said, we'll try a half module because, you know, most people who try two models, modules a year fail because it's too much work. But I got the scent and I ended up completing that degree in three years um, whilst also holding down a full time job and doing acting on the side. Uh, and uh, and I got a first and I was so shocked that <sighs> actually I know, right? So, well, no, it's just wonderful uh, to hear that you were able to work in a way that worked for you and like, you know, and totally thrive in it, you know? So it's just, that's so it's just, it's really inspiring to hear. I'm, I'm well, really... I think the education system doesn't work for, like, if you're a kinesthetic learner, if you're someone who learns by doing and moving, school is deadly for you. And like, I, 
worked at the Royal Opera House for a while with the Royal Ballet Company. And, you know, many of those uh, athletes, because they are the dancers, they learn by moving and doing and repetition. They don't speak. They don't listen to someone tell them what the moves are and then they do it. It's it's very physical. It's in their bodies. It's in their muscles. Um, and so I think my whole adult life has been leading towards the place that I'm at now. But by doing the Open University degree, I realised I wasn't stupid, which was a relief, um, I have to say. And I went on to do a master's at King's in Shakespeare studies because I still thought I'd be a director. And then when I was doing my master's, which was at King's and there was a module at the Globe Theatre, I was asked by the Globe Theatre as someone who was a professional actress, whether I would be an intern and help them with a particular project where they were documenting um, this educational uh, adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing. Uh, And I was delighted. So, of course, I said yes. And then uh, whilst I was interning, which was a three month position, uh, they were like, if we were to make this a formal job and offered it to you, would you take it? And I was like, absolutely. So I ended up by the end of my master's having a job at Shakespeare's Globe. Um, and I was there. Uh, basically, I, I managed their digital content. Um, my dad was a computer scientist and I've never been frightened of computers. And I know that I can work out any software. And this was at the time where the Arts Council was saying that all arts organisations needed to have uh, digital portals so that audience members could you know engage with the art form from their homes and the globe had no money and the arts council didn't give the globe any money but the globe was desperately hoping that they might please the arts council so they hired me basically to create an educational website based on Shakespeare's plays um which I did and I loved doing um and finished my masters uh whilst I was there and was just so happy to be working in that building which honestly mm that building is there's something magical about that building I absolutely love it but whilst I was there I was headhunted by the Royal Opera House who saw my educational website Royal Opera House has a lot more money than Shakespeare's Globe Uh, and they were like we want one of those but for opera and ballet please we'll make a job up for you and this because I just happened to be very lucky that as I was coming into this uh into the cultural sector at this point in time there were very few people who understood culture and had a literary education who also weren't scared of the digital and computers now everyone's a digital native but at the time no one was so they created uh, a job for me to be uh, a digital content producer at the Royal Opera House uh, and I moved there uh, and I did that for a few years which taught me so much about storytelling through music and movement Uh, but I missed the words I you know I'd wanted to be a director. I was directing things on the side at a little theatre in South London. And then the National Theatre, the guy who did my job at the National Theatre left. And he was like, you know, if you apply for my job, you'll get it because you're the most one of the most experienced people in the sector other than me. So like, you're not going to have much competition. So if you want to move to the National Theatre. And by this point, I'd met my uh, second husband who worked at the Royal Opera House and working in the same place uh, that your romance uh, is blossoming in is not a good idea because everyone interferes. So I I took the job at the National Theatre and I worked there for nearly 10 years, I think, whilst writing Beetle Boy. Now, I had ah. the idea for Beetle Boy way back when I worked at the Globe um, or maybe even before, but everyone I talked to about it, they 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 would look at me like, I was insane. <laughs> and then they would laugh as if they thought I was joking. And I do understand because I didn't know at this point in time that I was writing a book for children. I genuinely thought I was writing a novel for adults because it had occurred to me at this point in time because I'd had my first son and I was scared of insects. And so, you know, screamed when I saw an insect and ran around and then noticed that he was copying my behavior. He was screaming when there was a house fly and like freaking out. And I was like, oh no, bad mummy. <laughs> mummy should not teach fear to children. Mummy should deal with her own fears. And I'd started trying to educate myself about insects, but I was so scared of insects that I didn't want to start with the big one, the spider, which isn't an insect, it's an arachnid, but 
definitely terrified the crap out of me. Um, and so I was like, I'll start with what I think is the most friendly insect, which is the beetle. And I was pretty sure at this point in time that a beetle was a small insect with six legs that was black or brown and it scurried around under roots and trees. And I rarely saw them, which is probably why I wasn't scared of them. And um, and I just went to Wikipedia and put the word in beetle and up came a page about beetles. And that Wikipedia page changed my life because I read the sentence, uh, the scientific name for beetle is coleoptera. That's not a word I'd ever encountered in my life. And coleoptera means sheathed wings. And the defining characteristic of a beetle is that it has two pairs of wings, one sheathed beneath uh, the elytra, the hard wings. Um, but at this point in my life, and I was in my 30s, um, I didn't know that beetles had wings. I was like, that's rubbish. They don't have wings. They crawl around underground. What? This is wrong. <laughs> Uh, and then I realized, oh, I don't even know what a beetle is. Like, I'm a grown ass woman with a master's <laughs> and I don't know what a beetle is. How is this possible? And then I went out to the pub chatting to my friends. But like, hey, tell me what you think of when you think of a beetle. And they were all the same. And then I was like, did you know that beetles have wings? And like one or two might be like, oh, yeah, I think some do. But absolutely nobody knew that that was the defining characteristic of a beetle. I didn't even know that a ladybird was a beetle. I thought that was a separate type of creature altogether because it's got a different name. Like, I don't know who's in charge of naming these things, but someone called fireflies fireflies when actually they're beetles, right? So it's not surprising with the nomenclature that we have for these creatures that we're not really sure of what they are. But I discovered that not only did I not know most people that I knew, who some of them were very, very clever, they did not know what a beetle was either. And I was like, maybe, maybe I'm scared of insects because I wasn't really taught a lot about them. I don't know much mm. about them. And if I learned about them, I wouldn't be scared. Now, I have always, well, until I started being a writer, always loved to read fiction and not so much the nonfiction. And quite a lot of my learning, I'd read fiction books and Stories, literally, they soak into me and they become a part of my bones and then I can regurgitate them. And I've been to quite a few dinner parties where I've been saying something authoritatively that I thought was a fact that I've read in a fiction book, like something historical about the Tudors or something, uh, only to be humiliated by everyone around the table going, no, I don't think that's real, mate. Where did you get that information? And it's always been in a fiction book, right? So I was like, maybe I'm too frightened and I don't like bugs. Maybe I, I don't want to go wading through nonfiction books. Maybe I can find a really good book uh, about beetles that is like a story that will tell me this story. And I went to the British Library and I searched that catalogue and that's quite a comprehensive catalogue. And I realised that there weren't any. Like there just really aren't any, anything that does what I wanted to do with beetles, which is to really show people the wonderland that is the world of Coleoptera. And so I was like, oh God, it, it doesn't exist. I can't read it. What am I going to do? How am I going to get over my fear? And then of course, I remembered Neil Hannon and the Divine Comedy and how he could create songs that earned him a living. And I thought, well, if it doesn't exist, there are two reasons why it doesn't exist. Either it's a truly original idea, in which case, I should write it. Or lots of people have tried this and it's failed repeatedly because everyone hates insects. <laughs> and it could have been either. I had no idea at the time. So I just thought I'll start researching beetles because I had this story coming together in my head. And I knew the protagonist had to be a child because being a grown up myself, I know that most adults have closed minds. We think we know who we are. Our favourite colours don't change. Our favourite smells don't change. We know our favourite tastes and we know what we're scared of or if we've got vertigo and we don't think that can change. And I genuinely believed that I would be arachnophobic and insect phobic for the rest of my life. I did not believe that could change. Um, now, of course, I realised that in doing all that work and learning and writing, I've reprogrammed my brain and I've got pet stag beetles in a tank over there. Like, I'm not scared of them at all. I love them. Um, so I didn't know that at the time. 
But going on that journey with the subject matter, knowing that the protagonist had to be a child because they have open minds and they mm -hmm. haven't made decisions about who or what they are yet. I made Darkus 13 years old and I wrote an adventure with Beatles, which when I submitted to agents, I genuinely thought was a book for grown-ups. And that didn't, <laughs> didn't fare well. I got a lot of rejections because they were like, what the actual is this? No. Um, and so I, I didn't fare well with the first batch of agents that I sent it to. But then one agent uh, got in touch with me and she was having treatment for cancer at the time. So she was saying, I, I can't help you edit this book. Uh, I really like the idea. Um, the first two thirds are fine. Uh, the last third needs work, but I can't do it with you. Uh, there's this woman called Imogen Cooper who runs something called the Golden Egg Academy. Tell her I'm sending you. Um, she will help you fix it and then come back to me. Um, and she did indeed tell me what was wrong with the last bit of the book. I'd written a middle grade book, which I didn't realise, uh, but I'd written a YA ending. The ending was brutal. And she was like, whoa, this is a book for kids. And I was like, is it? And she was like, yes. And any child who reads this ending is going to be upset. Do you really want children to go to sleep and have nightmares? And I was like, oh, 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 learning all the time. Uh, and then I, so I rewrote the last third and sent it back to her. And then without telling me, she sent it to Barry Cunningham, who is the head of Chicken House um, and famously the guy who discovered J.K. Rowling for Bloomsbury. Um, and then she rang me randomly a couple of weeks later and said, um, good news, Barry wants to buy your book. And I was like, I beg your pardon, who's Barry? Like, I have no idea. Um, and so she explained that she'd sent it to Barry Cunningham. I was like Googling Barry Cunningham while she was on the phone. Uh, and she said, anyway, he's going to call you in the next hour or two and offer you a publishing deal. And I got really flustered because wow. I was like, but I don't have an agent. Yeah, yeah, I don't have an agent. I haven't finished yet. I, like, I, I you know. Came just totally uh, out of the blue, really. That out of the blue. And yeah. I wasn't ready for it. And, um, and and sure enough, he rang me up and he was quite brutal, actually, um, in that he rang me up and he was like, I'm offering you a publishing deal. It's a one book deal. It's this amount of money. You've got 24 hours to get back to me or I'm taking the deal off the table. Oh, my God. And I was yeah. like, what? And he was like, well, listen. You know, if I put an offer in on something, other publishers are going to want to offer it or turn into an auction. I'm not interested in doing that. You either take the offer or I'm taking the offer away. And I was like, but I don't even have an agent or anyone to talk to. And like 24 hours is a, not a lot of time, even if you want to call the Society of Authors, of which I wasn't a member because I didn't have a book. At, like, uh, So I I panicked and he, I was nice to him on the phone because I, you know, it's nice when someone likes your book. But I put the phone down and I rang up Imogen Cooper and I was really cross because I was like this, uh, you know, I've worked in the music industry. I've swum with sharks. I know what this is. This is a really ballsy move to bully someone and get it at a steal. He wanted world rights, film rights. like, And I was like, this is not okay. Um, and you put me in this position. I did not send my book to him and I'm not happy. And bless her, Imogen was uh, upset that Barry had decided to play hardball. <laughs> but it's only business for him. So, you know, he doesn't see uh, that as a bad thing. But no, for me, I... it was... Yeah. And I suppose also kind of like you saying, I haven't got an agent. You're thinking, great. Okay. Yeah. Let, well, go on then. Yes. <laughs> well, he did say, you don't, he said, you don't need an agent. They'll just take 15% of a deal that I've already offered you. You've got a deal. You don't need an agent. And I was like, oh, but I wanted an agent because I worked in the music industry and I managed bands and I know what goes down. And the yeah. artist should never, even like I, I've negotiated publishing deals and record deals for big bands but you should never negotiate your own deal. You cannot be objective about your own work. You should always have an agent. So I said this to Imogen Cooper and bless her. She was like, well, who, who on your list? Who's on your list? I am an editor. I know most agents. Uh, so I gave her like uh, top three or four people that I was thinking of approaching when I thought my book was ready, which I thought it wasn't. Um, and she was like, well, I know all of them. I'll get in touch with them right now, send them the manuscript, tell them there's a deal on the table and I'll get back to you. 
Oh, amazing. Uh, yeah, and uh, all three of them that she contacted that night came back before six o'clock the next morning, having read it, offering oh representation. Goodness. Wow. Yeah. Right? And I was aware of the clock, right? Yeah, so I what, had time, until about, what, what time have you got to? This is, this is, yeah, up to about six or seven o'clock the next day in the evening. Okay, okay so, so good progress so morning, fast. Yeah. Yeah. So in six o'clock in the next morning, I'd got three offers of representation. One of the agents lived in Brighton. Uh, uh, the one I was really interested in, who actually is now my agent, uh, was in Covent Garden in London. Uh, and uh, the third one, like, she wasn't top of my list. When Kirsty, who is now my agent, came back and said, look, I'll do breakfast with you at eight in the morning if you can get to London. Like I was already running out of the house, like throwing my clothes on, saying to my husband, like, you have to do the school run. <laughs> like got got to London, had breakfast with Kirsty, um, uh, And she was brilliant because she said to me, look, this is a game. To win the game, you have to know what you want. What is it that you want? Do you want? an auction with lots of money do you want and I was like well actually no Barry's only offering me a one book deal it's the first book of a trilogy I want a three book firm trilogy commitment because I want to complete this story I might not be an author I I worked at the National Theatre I work with many playwrights most of them cannot afford to make a living from their work I had no illusion that like no matter what money was offered to me it would be pocket money and I would not be giving up my job. Um, so I said to her, look, I've got a great job at the National Theatre. I'm not going to leave it. Um, you know, I just want to complete this trilogy. I'd love to have written a trilogy. That's my aspiration. Uh, and she was like, OK, I'll go back and I'll talk to Barry um, and I'll explain. So uh, she rang up Barry nine o'clock that morning. I signed a deal with her in her office. Uh, and watched her place the call. And she said, hello, Barry. It's me, because she knows him. I'm representing MG Leonard, and I'm here to negotiate the offer <laughs> that you made her last night. And I was just like, yes. Uh, and so I left, not knowing, obviously, how these things go. Um, oh, my and, goodness, this is uh, so thrilling. I can't believe this all happened in, like, 14 hours. And, like, in a matter of hours, yeah. it was wild. And so, like, I, I went home and my husband was like, what? What happened? I was like, I've got an agent now and she's talking to Barry and I've told her that I don't, it's not about the money, really. And, you know, I just want, you know, yeah. three books. Yeah. And uh, I think it was by the end of the day, like, by the deadline when he said that he would take the deal off the table, uh, she, because she was, I didn't even know what a preempt was at the time, but a preempt is obviously when a publishing company wants the book and doesn't want other publishers to see it. So they preempt an auction with a sizable offer. Um, and she was saying to him, listen, what you're doing is preempting because this book hasn't gone out to any publishers and the amount that you're offering is not a good preempt. So uh, you are going to have to up the offer. But what May is mostly interested in is a three book firm deal. Um, and one of the things that Chicken House had at the time was uh, a German uh, relationship with a Carlson in Germany. So they had an imprint in Germany and Scholastic in the US. So Barry was able to offer guaranteed publication, UK, Germany, US. And uh, she said, you know, if you can do that for all three books, you know, we're not asking for a lot of money. Um, so he gave me a three book deal. And if I do the math, I think the Ultimately, the final deal was four times what he originally offered, which I would never have ever been able to get for myself by yeah. myself, which is why yeah. I need an agent. Um, so even though, because some people say to me, yeah, but she didn't get you the deal. And I'm like, no, she got me a great deal. Like, you yeah. know, the book itself got me an offer. She turned it into a great deal. Yeah. Um, and, and so, that's such smart know, advice as well, saying that, you know, what is it that you want? Because that is it at the end of the day. And that's cha that changes and it's different for everybody. But having that conversation with her to get to the core of that was essential. That's, yeah. Yeah. And she explained to me, you know, she said, Barry Cunningham is a big fish in a small pond. You don't want to go behind anyone's back and do anything dirty. You need to have everything on the table and be honest. What do you want? Give him the opportunity to give you what you want. Um, and if he isn't prepared to give you what you want, then we'll go out widely. And, you know, uh, but he did. And that was how I ended up signed to Chicken House for my first three books. Ah, what a story. I'm, I'm, my heart's pounding. 
it should be said Barry Cunningham used to work in the music industry too so I think a shark often recognizes a shark (laughs) (laughs) but um how was the actual can we take one step back like how was it actually the writing when you were working at the national and you were you know you were well so the writing of your first book oh is like a world of pain it took me 10 years to write Beetle Boy and uh mostly because I didn't know what a beetle was, right? So as I was learning about beetles, the story had to keep completely changing. You know, I'd have like narrative questions like, oh, there's going to be a battle and then, you know, this beetle's going to like get stabbed. And then I'm like, do beetles bleed? Like, where are their hearts? Do they have hearts? Like, you know, so all of these questions, like just, just so that you can work out the mechanics of a scene, if you don't know that information, uh, you know, and I wanted I wanted the children that read these books to be confident that when they have conversations about insects with other people, the facts and the information that they've learned whilst reading my fiction books are a hundred percent reliable, right? Yeah. I don't want them going to dinner parties and yeah. saying things about the Tudors <laughs> that aren't true. Because I know how embarrassing that is and I know how disenfranchising it is when a child thinks they know something and they've got a fact and it's cool and they want to share it and they're excited about it. If someone's like, no, that's not true, it's really deflating. So uh, I did a lot of research uh, and for all my books, in fact, I get experts to check them, but I got an entomologist to proofread all the beetle books. So I had it took me about six years to learn enough about beetles to be an authority. Like I haven't done a PhD in entomology, uh, but I'm very good friends with the the head of Coleoptera at the Natural History Museum, uh, Max Barkley now. And often I'm saying to him, oh, I'm just a beetle tourist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert. And he was like, listen, you know, Darwin wasn't a scientist or an expert. He was an enthusiast and a tourist. And he said, you know more about the whole subject matter of beetles. He said the most people who do PhDs because they only study one strain of this of, of a species in complete depth, which can be wildly different from because there are four hundred thousand different species of beetles. So he was like, you know, don't don't do yourself down. So yeah. I definitely put in the hours. I'm an expert when it comes to uh, beetles. Um, and then of course I'd never written a book, and because of my own lack of confidence in my writing because of my experience at school. Uh, Like I was really paranoid about my spelling and punctuation and things like that. I was really, I was quite certain that what I was writing would be bad, that people would tell me it was bad. But the more I cared about the subject matter, the more I realized I had to elevate my writing because it was important that kids learn about insects. And and so it's, it's this weird thing where like I didn't, I wanted people to see insects were important because the more I learned about it and their role in the environment and the ecology and the world and oh goodness, like it just became more and more important that I did a good job. Um, and I had just met my second husband uh, and I was really struggling to write because I had, I was a single mum with uh, a three-year-old when I met him and I was trying to write, but I'd write a paragraph at the end of the day and I'd be exhausted and it would be bilge. And uh he suggested to me, because he read bits of scraps that I'd written, and he was like, look, I think this is great. How about I move in and I'll get up at six and give Arthur, that's my oldest son, breakfast and take him to school. And you get up at six and just write for an hour and then go to work um, oh, and see if you can get it done at the beginning of the day. Uh, and that this is why... I knew I'd met the right guy, right? Because I didn't know any other man that would put my creative project before his own morning lion, you know? I mean, it was quite amazing. Uh, So uh, I wrote a first draft. It took me two months doing that five days a week, every like for an hour in the morning. Uh, But I loved it because I felt when I got to work and do my day job, I felt like I was having like an affair in the morning with this book. Absolutely. I just thought about it. Yeah, I thought about it all day long whilst I was working and I was really excited to get up the next morning and continue. But of course, the first draft was, oh God, it was terrible. It was 120,000 words. I had no concept of how long children's books were meant to be. Uh, They're only meant to be, for those listening, between about 50 and 60,000 words. So 120,000 words is definitely too long. That's when I realised it was a trilogy. Uh, I had a lot of work to do 
um, to get it into the shape where I finally sent it to agents saying it was an adult book and they said, no, it wasn't. <laughs> and then that agent sent me to Imogen Cooper. So I, I'd spent 10 years on it by the time Barry rang me up, which is why when someone says you've got 24 hours, after you yeah. spent 10 years working on something, I was so angry. I was like, you bully, you bastard. Like, you know. <laughs> so, um, oh, amazing. So, yeah. So it well, that's brilliant time. that you met met your creative partner there at the right time that's incredible um but so you didn't it was like you just needed to have that space and also that I mean I love that you were just like you know obviously there was a load of baggage from your teachers and from school but just to be like I have to do this because I really this message is important this book is important like I have to do a good job with it and so that kind of made those voices quieten down yeah but also I really I realized quite quickly that nearly all the fiction that I consumed as a child used insects as a really negative horror device or an othering of like and it's it's really wrong because you know if you're reading books and you go into like a spooky dark house and there's scuttlings and there's like spiders webs and there's it's all used to make you frightened uh, and they're literary cliches that are peppered throughout every single book uh, anything that you want to do to create fear in children people will use insects to do it uh, and i realized that like my ignorance about the creatures had been compounded by the volume of fiction i'd read in which i had been taught mm. to be frightened mm-hmm of insects you know they stingers and like you know we'd love to uh really because if you look at the design of any big alien movie they often use insects as a way of making aliens yeah feel realistic but other and terrifying you know disgusting or strange um and the opposite is actually true the more you learn about insects i mean they are fascinating and beautiful and stunning but you very quickly realize oh if every human being on the planet were to be like disappeared magically insects would thrive but if every single insect were to disappear magically human beings would start to die within weeks uh, and we would eventually be wiped out like we really need them they perform so many important uh services jobs like in the environment uh the more you learn about insects the more stupid you realize that are what i i have i'm making generalizations because these are these are cultural uh, positions in the west not the east the east is way cleverer when it comes to insects japan has a beautiful relationship with insects so i i'm not making global generations just very european or western general uh, general uh, can't even say the word general generalizations there you go so but yeah and i and i just like there has to be some there has to be a book at least like at least one book that makes kids interested or like like bugs yeah well i mean it's how is that that yeah well that thirst for that excitement of discovery i think that comes across in buckets in that trilogy because now there are three books um and yeah um, and so, I mean, t- can you talk me through like series writing? Because you've mostly written, you know, um, mostly written in series, haven't you? Bar the ice. Yes, yes. I've only written one standalone. I, I assume that I'm not very bright in most things. So what I did when I looked, I knew that the Beetle trilogy would be three books, uh, and it's a series in which you have to start with book one, move on to book three, and then finish. Move on to book two, and then finish with book three. You can't read them out of order it won't like I mean you could but you're meant to read them in order um and there are some pivotal trilogies that I read obviously his dark materials like Lord of the Rings etc um but writing a trilogy is actually really hard because you've got an arc in each book that has to be completed to feel satisfactory and then you have to have an arc over the entire trilogy and I grew up loving uh star wars at the movies i think i was about eight when i saw the first movie um empire strikes back was always my favorite that's the middle bit for those of you who aren't star wars heads that's that's book two um and i really i wanted to make sure that because i i i what i did at this point is i i researched lots of trilogies and i read them and what i discovered 
was that most authors that write a trilogy, they write a standalone book. The publisher puts it out. It becomes successful. The publisher wants another one. The writer panics because it was a standalone, right? There's no overarching straddling structure. So they try and write a a part two, but often what they do is they just write the same story again and change something. So instead of being on Earth, it's on Mars, but it's exactly the same arc and it's repetitive and it can always feel a little disappointing. And then by the time you get to the third one, you're like, oh my God, it's the same one again, but they're all upside down and painted green this time. Like, you know, but, and that's not, I think the writer's fault. I think that's, I think it's because publishers don't like to invest in a trilogy. And there's a very good financial reason for that, which is that uh, trilogies provide what we would call diminishing returns. So let's say a hundred people read book one, no, let's let's make it even better. A hundred people buy book one, eighty of them actually read it. Forty of them like it so much that they'll wait a whole year, not easy when you're a child, and buy book two. Of those forty people that buy book two, thirty of them read it. And of those thirty, fifteen will wait another year to buy book three. And so what you end up with. Um, particularly in the first years that a trilogy comes out, is that by the time you get to book three, you can't sell book three to new readers. They're not going to start with book three. So what publishers tend to do now is think of book three as a way to promote book one again. They they front load everything. It's all about selling as much of Beetle Boy as possible, not Battle of the Beatles, because you can't promote the third book to anyone who hasn't already read the first one. Um, so... I do understand the reticence of publishers to commit to a trilogy. And I know as the writer of a trilogy how it can be quite deflating when your first book is loved by everyone, when the second book has got like a tepid response because only half of them are actually looking at it. And then by the third one, you're like, oh, it's like a real damp squib. However, once you've written all three and they're out there in the world, and children discover you, they're voracious readers, they burn through all three because yeah. they're all there. And they're it's desperate for another one. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. just those first few years that are difficult. But having that experience, and at the time I was only writing one book a year, which I felt was a lot considering it took me 10 years to write the first book, um, I realised, oh, this is this is problematic, you know. And so that's when I started to think about my next project, which was the Adventures on Train series. And I'd had the idea for the series uh, because my sons love trains. Um, but I don't, I'm, I know a lot about Beatles. I knew that if I wrote something about trains, it would be for children who enjoyed and loved info about trains. I wanted it to be info rich, but I'm not an engineering minded train person. Um, and I worked at the National Theatre with Sam Sedgman, who was, uh, I was his boss for a number of years. And I knew he could write and I really liked him. Like we were, became fast friends when we worked together. And he was a chuffer nutter. He was crazy about trains. So when I told him my idea for the Adventures on Train series, he just kind of exploded with suggestions. Uh, bless him. He would never have dared suggest we write them together at the time. Uh, I think he just saw me as his boss who'd gone off and made these amazing books about Beatles. And I, I was like, well, I can't do this on my own. I literally don't know anything about trains and also kind of don't really care. I'm much more into my bugs. So um, I asked him to write them with me. Uh, and what I said to him right at the very beginning is like, we do not want to write a trilogy or a quartet or whatever, where, the way you have to read them in order. We're going to write standalones, detective stories that you can read in any order um, so that everyone that comes out can be promoted like the first book in a series, because mm -hmm. that's really important uh, to keep going. I realize like understanding like writing is a craft and an art that it takes a lifetime to uh, work out. But understanding that you're creating a product for somebody else and that there is a business attached to it and a marketplace in which you're competing. And you're not just competing with the other writers, you're competing with all the other writers that have ever existed for shelf space. Like uh, Waterstones has only got so much shelf space and they're going to have Roald Dahl on there and they're going to have Enid Blyton. If you want to fit, you have to fight for space with those big guns, you know? So I was saying like, right, 
to really break through, we're going to need to map out the whole series. And indeed, we actually mapped out 10 books uh, before we wrote the first one. And Sam dragged me to the Railway Museum in York uh, and actually made me into a, a train enthusiast. He's the expert, but I'm definitely just as passionate now. Um, but I designed that series so that I wouldn't have the same experience that I had in the trilogy of feeling like I was kind of fighting a losing battle. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so to do that, you have to create a series structure whereby each new book is a complete standalone adventure. Um, and that's, and I, I do that with Twitch. Like I always think that you should read the first book in a series first because it's the origin story of your hero, like Spider-Man. You can read a Spider-Man comic from in the middle of Spider-Man's like stories, uh, but it always really helps to know that he got bitten by a radioactive spider and that's how he ended up with Spidey Senses, you know, and that's the first story. So I always think it's useful to read the first story first, but um, I now no longer uh, write something where you have to read it first and then the second one and then the third because it never occurred to me at the time but obviously in a school library if somebody's got the second book out you can't read you on. have to wait yeah 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 whereas if it's a series where they're all standalones you can just pick oh well I you know the second one's not there but I'll read the third one and I'll come back to the second one um and also you know it just you don't think of these things, but children can only access books through gatekeepers. You know, they often don't have their own money. They can't walk into a book sh bookshop and buy a book. They have to be taken to a library. There'll be a librarian or a teacher or a parent who will guide them towards literature. Um, and if what's available there is only book three, but they kind of want to give it a go, you don't want the way that you've structured your stories to prohibit them from entering the series yeah, yeah. Uh, and I did not realize that didn't realize that when I wrote Beetle Boy I didn't realize that actually you know a lot of the children in year six who'd loved Beetle Boy by the time Battle of the Beatles was published they were in secondary school and they'd actually stopped reading that's the other thing that you're competing with when you're a children's writer is that you know children who love your books when they're 10 may not read at all by the time they're 13 uh, and so if you've got a series long-running series unless you're as um well, lucky as J.K. Rowling and people will go with you. Um, and I'm not sure that publishers, publishers aren't really keen for authors to evolve from middle grade into teen through yeah. a series. Mm -hmm. um, they often won't let you. And that's the other thing that people don't realise. There are things that publishers do and don't let you do. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I've now struck, I, I really think very carefully about structuring my stories before I write a word and what would happen if your route in was through book two or book three? Would that matter? You know, because children, usually they like a collection. They're going to try and read all of them. They just might not be able to read them in order. And so now I try and write series where that's possible. So The Twitchers is my newest series, the Birdwatching Detective series. Uh, the book that's about to come out, Feather, is set in winter. I wrote them. Twitch was set in the summer holidays. Spark came second. That was set in the autumn half term. Then uh, there's no way I could have written Feather in time to do Winter Next. So I did Spring Next, which is Clutch, which came out last Easter. And now I'm doing Feather. But if you read them in season order, if you start summer, autumn, winter, spring, if you go that way around, I've written Feather so that it drops very neatly time-wise into that, that slot you can read them in that order or you can read them in the order in which I wrote them or you can start with Feather and it won't make any difference to your yeah. experience of the series. And that's one of the joys about the detective, the detective story structure. You start off like, it's like with Poirot. You can read a Poirot or Miss Marple. It doesn't matter what order you read them in. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that's... And it's such so a that satisfying lends itself very plot. Well for a, you know it's such a satisfying plot for yeah. each story each book it wraps up yeah yeah wraps up oh. neatly with a denouement very smart very very smart um, what was it like co-writing how did you manage that how did you how did you work it with I love I honestly love co-writing I'm not I'm not sure I could co-write with just anyone I have to say but 
Sam Sedgman and I worked at the National Theatre for years. And in theatre, collaborative storytelling is theatre. That's exactly what it is. And, you know, working in rehearsal rooms and even when you've got a script by a great scriptwriter, even with Alan Bennett, the actors will play around with lines, twist them, change them. Like, you know, directors will come in and say, this is running too long. We need to lose 20 minutes. We're going to take this section out. Even right through previews, if you work in a theatre, you see how much a play changes Every audience thinks they're seeing the finite version of that play. The truth is there is no final fixed version of a play. Um, And so Sam and I both came from that background. We also started off our relationship uh, securing the knowledge that like I'd published a successful trilogy. He'd never published anything. He wanted to be a writer. I had a name that had value in the marketplace so uh we we set out some rules uh which was that uh the main rule is that both of us have to agree so if i come up with an idea for a book to go into the book and he doesn't like it we throw it away immediately if he comes up with an idea and i don't like it we throw it away immediately if we come up with an idea that we're both like don't know stick it on the wall and then at some point in the story one of us goes oh no actually this this doesn't work anymore it's gone that means that everything in the books both of us have agreed to there isn't anything in there like we both have power of veto and that means that like you know we always have to come up with better ideas because we worked in theater we tend to plot our books uh, on our feet with a blank white wall with post-it notes where we're just talking to each other for hours going, oh, this could happen next and this could happen. And then when you've got it sparking between two people's imaginations, you get an escalation of drama and in it, you can take you know a simple situation uh, and it become more complicated and more humorous and more weird and just more original when it's flying between two brains, each trying to outdo each other with awesomeness, you know? <laughs> uh, and then it goes onto the wall. And then once we've created the entire structure of the plot, we've come up with our characters, we've given them names and traits and secrets, and we've created the entire, we always, I always write in a five act structure because of theater. Um, So I always divide everything into act one, this has got to happen, act two. uh, And we put all our post-it notes up on the wall together. Uh, Sam always likes to do everything color-coded. I'm more like a octopus of chaos <laughs> just splat things up um he's much more ordered than i am uh, but we create the entire thing we photograph it uh, and then one of us is given the job of writing the draft zero the crap draft which is literally just going through and going chapter one this is what happens chapter two this is what happens and creates like a like a skeleton version of the book uh and both sam and i have different strengths so uh i'm very good at like dialogue and subtle shifts in emotion in a scene and character uh he's very much about the clues and the puzzles and all the train stuff Uh, and so whoever did the draft zero it goes to the other person and they write their version of the book Uh, and then it's like a baton then it goes back to the other person who will rewrite the book and so like I will always build up the character work and the dialogue and the emotion and he's always like this clue doesn't quite work and and so he focuses on the puzzly stuff and we get to the point where at the end of the process when we've got a book that's gone to the editor neither of us is really sure who wrote what we never do a chapter each or a sentence each or any of that we've gone both gone over it and over it um but always at the last point because at the beginning of this process he'd never published a book I was like I need the last pass to make sure I'm happy because I've got a name that I could ruin and I I say that because there were a few people when I came up with the Adventures on Train project and presented it to the universe um who told me it would damage my career and that I shouldn't be writing something so different from Beatles and I certainly shouldn't be writing with an unknown writer who didn't have a name, that I should write a project with someone who was as well known as me. But I thought they were all absolutely completely wrong. Um, But I was scared that, you know, those little voices, maybe they're right, maybe this will destroy my career. Uh, But I was really 
sure that kids would love it because I knew yeah, that my boys who were not readers yet would love it. And I mean, it's and perfect. I knew I could work all with those Sam. To- yeah, I mean, sorry, I'm just thinking of all those Thomas lovers and Thomas Tank mm. Engine lovers. And it's like, where do they go? And then it's like, this is where they go. It's like the it's like that perfect perfect step. Now, when I saw and those books, I was like, oh, I was the opposite to all your naysayers. I was like, what a brilliant idea! This is fantastic. Well, the, I always think that if you come up with an idea and you think, oh, this already exists, I'm sure, and then you look and it doesn't, that's like because that's what happened to me with the Beatles. When my oldest son, because he loved all the Thomas stuff and had all the train sets, etc. When he started doing independent reading at school, I took him to the library and the bookshop looking for books that he was actually interested in. And he just, he was looking for trains. And there were only kind of magical trains powered by glitter that flew in the skies and were driven by unicorns. And he was like, that is so not real. Like he just, he was never interested in fantasy at all. He just found it really off-putting. And quite a lot of boys actually are much more fact-orientated. Um and I just thought it's a real shame that there aren't adventures on trains for slightly older readers because I know that my son would have loved them. And then I had another son and I was like, oh, right. OK, well, we're going to have the same problem all over again. Um, and that that's where I got the idea from was my sons wanted to read a book that didn't exist. And I didn't think I could write it because I didn't know about trains, but I did know Sam. And that was one of the things that made me very annoyed Um when one particular person told me that I shouldn't be writing with Sam like they didn't ask me why I was writing with Sam they didn't say what does he bring to the project or anything they were just obsessed with whether he had a name or not mm-hmm. uh, and I just thought that's that's it that doesn't mean anything to kids kids don't know names I mean sure they know JK Rowling and they know David Williams off the telly but most of our books they yeah. like the book yeah. they don't know our name yeah um yeah. so yeah and it's great. It's, I mean, and also just seeing that full circle of you say, you know, when you began acting, how much you loved that rehearsal stage and that collaboration, yeah. that, and then you were g- getting back to that in the writing for Adventures in Trains. Exactly. And like, you know, I don't, I think if some, if I was, if I had been writing with a writer who developed a process and they were stuck in their ways, because one of the joys of writing with Sam is that I developed a process over Beatles, which I shared with him and we worked in a way that I worked in. So it worked for that reason. Now he's got his own first solo book coming out in February, which is excellent. It's called The Clockwork Conspiracy. Uh, And I know that I can always write with Sam again because we will just fall back into the way that we created those six books. Um, But now he's writing books on his own. He will evolve and develop his own way of doing things, you know, and he will change. But it was because he'd not written a book before that I was quite confident that we would find our way together. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that was, that's one of the things I think that made it work that and that we like each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks so much, Mayor. This has been just brilliant. I feel like I could just chat to you for hours, but um, I'm aware that you're giving your, your time and your lovely shared and you've got a lot going on. Um, tell us what's next on the horizon for you. Well, what, when does this podcast go out? How soon do you turn them around? Oh, very quickly, because it's ramshackle. Oh, do you? Okay. Well, so, I mean, in about three weeks, maybe two weeks. Okay. So I, ha- oh, well, that would be perfect. So I have a book called Feather, the last book in the Twitch is out on the 1st of February. Um, but I'm very excited because that book, Feather, um, in each of the Twitch's books, I focus on one particular hero, Bird, because they're all about bird watching. And in uh, feather it's all about corvids because it's set in winter and that's <sighs> when you see crows and rooks and and ravens um and many years ago in 2018 uh when i was uh doing a signing for beetle queen at an o2 in finchley uh road uh, i met the raven master who is the chap who looks after the ravens in the tower of london and he had written a book called The Raven Master and he was there signing his books and he was in his full kind of beef eater regalia and he was uh, he was so amazing. And I basically fangirled him all afternoon and he took home a copy of Beetle Boy and I bought, I, I think I bought about five copies of The Raven Master for like everyone I knew and got him to sign it. Um, and when I read that book, it was astonishing and it really is one of the reasons why I ended up writing about bird watchers, just the... Ravens have got so much kind of uh, 
mythical roots and storytelling and and folk tales, but also they're just incredibly interesting birds. Um, anyway, in a couple of weeks, I am going to the Tower of London. He has uh, very sweetly uh, replied to my email when I was like, hello, you might not remember me, but I wrote a book about uh, beetles and I've written one now about raven. And uh, he's invited me to the Tower of London to meet the ravens in the Tower ah! of London. And I'm going to film it. No one knows this yet. So this is a hot secret that I'm sharing with you. This all came in over the weekend. Um, I'm going to film it uh, for a Waterstone social media takeover and they don't even know um, that I'm doing Amazing. it. Amazing. Um, yeah. So I'm very excited about that. So that is all going to come out uh, the week of publication, even though not even my publishers know that I'm doing it. So I'm very <laughs> excited. That's what that's what's on the horizon for me. Ravens, the Tower of London uh, and another bird watching book. And of course, I'm writing a million things, but of course, um, but yeah, that's what's by the by. But that's um, that's yeah. the best answer for what you do next. I'm going to the Tower of London to meet the ravens with the I Raven know. Master. So <laughs> yes. Oh well, thank you, and best of luck with everything. I love your books, and it's just been yeah, so fascinating to hear how you write and your approach, and really, really appreciate it. So thank you so much. No, thanks for having me on. I feel like I've just talk non-stop I... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. I'm a that's terrible good. chatterbox what a fantastic chatterbox she is um so yes I think that might have inspired you to start your own series but with some savvy knowledge up your sleeve um yeah <laughs> I just absolutely love um Maya's sort of enthusiasm for her subjects you know what she gets into um, an interest and then you can just see how that just fires up her brain and it was just brilliant to s listen to how how she started off thinking that this was something she never would have even entertained doing um, and now and now look at what, what she's up to it's brilliant so this will come out this is coming out um, a couple of weeks before the publication of Feather which is the newest installment of the Twitchers series which is about um mystery solving bird watchers so on the first of feb the feather feather will be out and we've got that exclusive knowledge about her fantastic promo visiting the ravens in the tower of london too so whether you're listening live as you can or way in the future check out mg leonard feather and any of her books okay bye <laughs>